Bubbles. <laughs> That's already a big start. Um, well, thank you everyone uh, at Republica for inviting me. It's a real honor, and I'm even more honored by all the people who are here listening to me. I hope I fulfill all. The, I don't know if I'm going to fulfill all the demands of the promised talk, but um, I do want today to talk about a phenomena about the resilient forms of speculation and about the relationship between. Ecological thinking and management and finance, and particularly how it relates to smartness and smart computing. So, without further ado, I'll just start going. I tend to talk really fast, so slow me down if you need to. But、um, I think you'll hopefully you'll enjoy it.、Um, so, just to open, I want to open with a bunch of scenes from my work,、um, and I'm going to work you through a couple work、uh, case studies. But just to begin. From the tailings of large open pit mines and omnipresent data centers, with their seeming infinitude of data, to the overconcentration of capital in the hands of the few, we appear to be in an age of dense accumulation, feeling the weight of what was once seemed so light. The internet and information have become concrete, literally utilizing the sand and metals of our earth to transmit data in a manner not so different than constructing roads and buildings. So much weight makes us dream of being plastic and light, mobile, modulatory, capable of bearing all these materialities, while continuing to sustain the technical and economic fantasies of eternal growth and novel change. It is of perhaps no surprise then that since the 1970s, it is the word resilience that has become the figure of hope for planners, entrepreneurs, policymakers, and environmentalists alike. And behind me is a figure of a number of population of derivations of population curves from the original article from 1973 by C.S. Holling, Resilience and Stability, that introduces the concept of resilience using ideas of communication and cybernetics to rethink the management of populations in ecosystems. Um, resilience, loosely defined, is a system's ability to absorb shock and continue functioning. The best system, if we will, is the one that can bear the weight of dynamic change and flexibly respond to the accumulations of population, matter, contaminants, and money. The best ecology is one that can operate under a lot of pressure. The 1970s also marked the rise of another myth reality: that of finance capital and derivatives. Behind me is the Black Scholes derivative pricing equation. This derivative pricing equation also has a lot of nature. It's got a whole eco portion to itself, even even if it doesn't have a whole lot of. Reason. It's basically a random walk coming out of、um, physics and thermodynamics, merged with a normal curve that allows you to adjust time to bet on uncertainty and fluctuating、um, prices. Finance is often presumed to be feather light and mobile, unattached to earthly matters, while financial instruments are often argued to be detached from the social and material processes that make commodities. They're usually understood as money making more money. As the recent 2008 crisis demonstrated, nothing could be further from the truth. Derivatives are financial instruments that allow a certain amount of something: mortgages, gold. Oil, energy, anything to be traded at some point in the future at an agreed-upon price. One can also, for example, bet on the cancellation of an order or some event changing the future price of the underlying commodity or security. The result is that the size of the derivatives markets far overshadows the actual world's gross domestic product, by now exceeding the world's GDP by 20 times, and that's just what we can measure. These markets have grown exponentially by 25 percent per year over the last 25 years. Despite, however, being seemingly abstract and delinked from the present, derivatives also drive human actions. Of course, people build homes, take mortgages, and subsequently suffer. Suffer when these markets move by tying together disparate actions and objects into a single assembled bundle of reallocated risks to trade. Derivatives make us both indebted to one each other and to the earth itself, which is often the literal matter of such exchanges. The political and ethical question, but also a design and aesthetic question, which I hope this talk will pr、uh, provoke, thus becomes how we might activate this increased indebtedness that these、um, forms of technology create in new ways. Ones that are less amenable, if we will, to strict market logic of neoliberal or perhaps now neo-extractionary economies, all of which are algorithmically driven. 
What then is the relationship between speculation and resilience, and perhaps extraction computation? How we think together the seeming incommensurability of the material weight and geological timeliness of our earthly actions with the speed and mobility of globalized computational and machine-traded capital. And what indeed would a speculative, ethical form of design look like that attended not only to the construction materials, but the very materialities of derivation and algorithmic trading that support our contemporary world? These questions emerged for me quite visually. Most of my work uh, up to now has been on smartness, smart cities, smart finance, lots of things. And in fact, this equation is often called smart. Um, and indeed, it is run on a large and vast computational framework, things like Bloomberg terminals, with its algorithms and large data centers. Here's a one in New Jersey um, that facilitate this mode of financialization infrastructurally. But I've also been working on smart cities. This is Songdo. It's a smart city in South Korea um, that I've been working at for two years. And as I started working, I was doing a lot of field work on topics of logistics and smart cities. I became concerned with the forms of speculation and hope that continue to facilitate the construction of such greenfield um, uh, infrastructures, both in terms of smart cities and grids, logistical ports. Um, even smart minds, which I'm going to discuss a little bit today, and of course financialization. What interested me was both the vision of the negative future and its optimistic response. So one of the things that struck me as I went to all these installations is how we're pessimistically, computationally optimistic. What's that mean? What interests me in all the marketing when I went to these things is how the vision of a negative future. So, for example, here in Songdo, it's being sold as a green city. Which somewhat assumes that there's sort of a climate change catastrophe forthcoming, for which this installation will save us. Um, that this greenness is going is is optimistically responded to through the increase of computational infrastructure into the environment. So ubiquitous technology would both secure um, the future, if you will, of both economic growth and and life itself. And that this sort of increased computing, even through new forms of extraction, these are lithium beds that I visited.、Um, Created a new equation for me. How has bandwidth come to equal resilience, which is to say survival, come to equal life itself? So how is it that the amount of bits of information flowing over a fiber optic cable now is equivalent to survival? This should not at all be automatic for anyone, and I'm a historian, so this poses some questions as well as some questions about why this has become. Not perhaps for the people in this room, but for many people in the design fields, a kind of normative and、um, automatic response that bandwidth is indeed a solution to contemporary problems of financial,、uh, environmental, and security insecurity. So this poses a new set of equations. And by the way, I love making up these little equations. They're totally not correct, but、um, they help me think through a diagram. And hopefully, you'll enjoy them too and have some questions. So posing this new sort of equation, where extraction plus resilience, usually equated with smart technologies and ubiquitous t-、uh, computing, plus speculation equals a new robust hopefulness. The end of the world has never looked better or more profitable in this sort of formulation. But what's re- so? What's really, really even more interesting than this、um, correlation between computing and life is the way that、um, this terrible end that is assumed to come never seems to arrive. So when I talked, for example, to、um, to engineers at Songdo, and Songdo happens to be grafted out of the South China Sea, so there are a few things worse for the environment. It's under sea level. It's heavily leveraged. At the time I was working there, it was actually、um, totally bankrupt.、Uh, so when I asked the Cisco people working on it, you know, what's 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 going to happen here?、Um, you know, what if this thing quote unquote fails? They're like, no problem. We're already building version 2.0 in Malaysia and Ecuador. In fact, they called it a testing ground, an example, an experiment, a prototype, repeatable. In short, it's a demo. It's very structure, kind of of uh, following um, the logic of derivation. And demoing and betting that is in finance. So I'm interested in this relationship between form and finance. So just as we swap, derive, and circulate in finance, we demo, prototype, inversion, and design.、Um, 
and, in or, and I want to be thinking about this correlation about farm and finance and the way finance is transforming and terraforming our planet. Um, and particularly, I want to start confronting these logics of derivation, extraction, speculation that accept the sacrifice of certain lives as necessary and justified for survival and growth, what I'm labeling resilient hope. So, in order to think about this, I'm going to discuss in this talk three operations that I think underpin this condition hoping, demoing, and deriving. And in order to really give this some substance, this is all really theoretical, I want to talk about just three scenes from my research over the last few years in a BTB in Quebec, in Kolkata, India, and in the New York City and the United States. So, to begin with, let's start with hoping and extracting. So,、um, I'm a glutton for these large scale infrastructural sites. I just constantly go to them.、Um, uh, and so, aside from、uh, less than functional smart cities, I'm interested in smart mining. And behind me is the Malarctic gold mine in、um, Abitibi,、um, Quebec. Uh, um, and this is、uh, near Val d'Or. And in fact, it has.、Um, And、it's one of the largest open pit mines in Canada, and I think one of the larger open pit gold mines、uh, left on Earth.、Um, and、uh, it's basically. It's basically no easy mining on this earth left, so that essentially you have to dig up a whole lot of ore. The ore quality is very degraded. And so you basically have to dig up about, there's about one part per million of gold inside the rock, which is to say you have to dig up one ton of rock for one gram of gold. But this is still profitable because it costs $650 a gram to mine, and the current price of gold is, is $1,286 USD as of This morning, so you can't really lose there. And in fact, almost all the metals are running out. As we talk to geologists at this site, you can see this is about the estimated, even with technical development,、um, dates for which、uh, most of these、uh, minerals and、um, materials will be running out.、Um, so it's a pretty quote unquote safe bet.、Um, So, monetarily speaking, I'm not sure about the survival part. People are、uh, clearly investing in this. And it's also a smart mine. It's fully automated. Just about everything except the truck drivers and the geologists、um, involve a vast number of sensors, high frequency radio, infrared, and spectroscopy. There's a whole lot of data being fed out of this mine, both because the deeper you mine,、um, the more geological instability there is, but also in terms of prospecting, searching, and everything else. Um, there's a huge amount of technical infrastructure to ensure the safety, security, and、um, discoverability of these minerals. The result of all this smartness is by the end of this mine, which is probably 12 years,、uh, but might stretch out to 25, there is upwards of 750 million tons of waste rock and tailings. And these are the tailing ponds of which there's about 22.、Um, Kilometers squared behind this installation. The whole installation is about 25 kilometers square. This also results in a sort of boom bust economy, and here's the whole area. These areas of Quebec are kind of littered with these empty,、um, vacant towns.、Um, As, the, as towns are sort of left to die once the labor demands dry up, since the life of these mines is actually quite short.、Um, all of this will eventually be reclaimed because ultimately the search is to kind of you dig it up and then you sort of try and make it look just like you did before by covering it up by a forest, even if there's a few heavy metals now in the water. And here you can see、um, calcium carbonate being pumped into the boreal forest behind、uh, water that's. That has calcium carbonate pumped into it,、um, which is released back into this lovely forest.、Uh, and the reason they're putting, pumping this,、um, these basic materials in is in order to de acidify the water, since you need to use sulfur and cyanide to get the gold out of the rock, since basically all mining is today chemistry.、Um, and this is in order to basically supposedly return the ecosystem to exactly as it was before. And this we call resilience, and in fact, that's The term being used, it's not that things aren't destroyed, but that the functions of the boreal forest are maintained despite this、um, vast、uh, technical operation. And all of this is mostly not for jewelry. 90% of the gold goes right back underground. To, this is the Bank of England、um, to sit in vaults in London and Switzerland and so forth to act as another commodity. 
In fact, gold is one of the heaviest hedged minerals that tends to、um, be a hedge bet to other forms of volatility、um, to feed the ongoing turn,、uh, need to, turn, to liquefy the planet and hopefully bet on the not so insecure future. In the meantime, all this betting can keep going because these mines are supposedly environmentally friendly. So, at the result, we have smart, resilient green extraction, and we can continue to go on doing this.、Um, so, why stop there? Let's go with even more hoping that I want to be thinking about. So, we have a geological mode of hoping, but we also, of course, I've been thinking about mining and extraction in lots of places. This, for example, is Shilaguri in the foothills of the Himalayas in West Bengal. What you're seeing here is sand extraction in order to get cement or concrete for construction. In order to do this, they're basically digging up the, fo- the foothills of the Ganga, essentially destroying the river system for all of、um, South Asia. All of this is happening because 600.、Um, Miles to the south is this is Rajarat in Kolkata.、Um, it was supposed to be a smart city, but it's mostly abandoned condos. But very often they don't even finish the fiber optic hookups. Nothing's been done, and the reason that it's uninhabited is because essentially it's been credit debt swapped to foreign investors.、Um, So this concrete, in order to build these huge complex, comes from these areas of the Himalayas, containing this sort of cycle. In the course of all of this, of course,、um, most of the people, in order to build this particular complex, some 30,000 people were dispossessed, ending up in these sort of、um, informal developments. Throughout, and this sort of is a very, very common story throughout South Asia, Southeast Asia, and other places in the world.、Um, so, while most of the new housing in Rajarat, not to mention across India, has never been and might never be occupied, having been bought solely for speculation and credit debt um, um, swapping by domestic and foreign investors, construction continues ahead at full speed, leaving many people dispossessed and working in horrible、um, conditions, such as those. In the Kolkata、um, port. So why stop there? There's ever greater hopefulness. So mirroring these scenes of graphic territorial scale violence are another set of marketing, technological, and logistical endeavors that take part in a positive speculation on precarity and environmental destruction. So speaking of liquid and rising waters in particular, let's recall the recent economic crisis of 2008.、Um, not longer after which, one of the more astounding recent demonstrations of hopeful speculation. Was focused on this future devastation of New York City. The 2010 Rising Current exhibition at New York's Museum of Modern Art took place moments, ironically, before the real Hurricane Sandy、uh, hit New York City. One of the most popular projects exhibited was Oyster Texture. You see a beautiful rendering of it behind me. A project that has gone on to be funded at the tune of some 60 million dollars by the Rockefeller Foundation as part of its Resilient Cities project. The project is sited、um, off of Staten Island and proposes to grow oyster reefs as ecological barriers, as kind of nature against nature. All, of course, in up commas. The very recruitment of our and other organisms' bodies for and as infrastructure poses historically situated questions, of course, about what makes this new mode of managing speculation, population, and futurity novel, and how these forms of speculation are, of course, related to this other term, resilience. I'm going to keep coming、um, back to, and in this case, designers are seeking to make Manhattan resilient. The irony is that in serving as infrastructure, the oysters would slowly die off as a result of their dirty and inhospitable environments, and, and also because of the rising acidity of the oceans due to increased CO2 in the atmosphere. The state of being used to death perhaps goes beyond any of our older ideas of how we've been thinking, of course, of labor and neoliberalism. This death, however, is beautifully rendered by architects. And here is a, someone who also runs a speculative design lab. There's a sort of question here about. The sort of practices that are both both the material technical practices and also the aesthetic practices that maintain this condition.、Um, so this is beautifully rendered, embracing not only the terminal destruction as aesthetically. Pleasing, but also assuming the inevitable 
um, destruction of much of New York by tidal waters. In this case, the real destruction of New York was initially taken as an opportunity for innovation and design thinking. So the opening, I mean, this, play, this is a robustly uh, pessimistically optimistic exhibition. So the opening of the catalog says uh, something to this extent, that MoMA and PS1 have joined forces to address one of the most urgent challenges facing the nation's largest city, sea level rise resulting from global climate change. Though the national debate on infrastructure is currently focused on shovel-ready projects that will stimulate the economy, we have an important opportunity to foster new research and fresh thinking about the use of New York City's harbor and coastline. As in past economic recessions, construction has slowed dramatically in New York, and much of the city's remarkable pool of architectural talent is available to focus on innovation, which is to say they're unemployed, so they're ready to work for you. Great. Um, this rather stunning statement turns economic tragedy, the labor crisis, in architecture after... Sorry, okay. Um, so just to kind of exemplify this kind of robust form of resilient hopefulness and speculation, I just want to turn to another project in the same um, uh, exhibition, New Aqueous City by N Architects, that repeats this theme of destruction made visible and aesthetically pleasing with a proposal for new vote zoning strategies and the literal use of bottom-up design strategies such as placing flo floating devices on the bottom of buildings and seawalls. In the video accompanying their proposal depicted a storm surge and narrated by way of architectural intervention are survivals. As the waters rise, new real estate and agricultural opportunities are offered. When the big storm finally hits, and this is coming in just one moment, um, we will see here, so here we have the storm surge. It's also great, first we have our hydroponic our gardens, the storm surge, and then we see individuals calmly gathering and being evacuated. There's like no wind. It doesn't look at all like Houston or New Orleans. But um, so they, we see individuals calmly gathering in what appears to be a fancy condo, preparing for evacuation. Um, this, these images, of course, resemble nothing of the devastated environment of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, which, unlike Sandy, actually had people evacuated, or the more current situations in Puerto Rico or Houston. But nonetheless, it kind of de de demonstrates this sort of lust for ruins, if you will, that has become the sort of aesthetic right now in architectural rendering and design, but also, of course, forces us to envision who is being left behind in these imaginaries as we're kind of envisioning the future of constructing our resilient cities. Um, so what ties all these things together, on one hand, is obviously finance, right? So I just gave you some very disparate examples of the kind of um, hopeful speculation that I've had to be thinking about and thinking about with um, my students in research studios. And what's tying these things together is obviously finance, but on the other hand, there is a notion of ecology and environment that substantiates these kind of contemporary forms of speculation, a concept that we can destroy things in the present and withstand the pain or continue taking the shock. Resilience has a particular logic. It's not about a future that is better, but rather an ecology that can take constant new forms of trauma while maintaining its functionality and organization. So following the work of Bruce Brown and Stephanie Wakefield is a state of permanent management with idea, without ideas of progress, change, or improvement. I mean, it makes sustainability look positively awesome. The irony is that this hopeless situation is actually met with hopeful speculation, usually through new forms of temporal management in finance and technology. Thus, real estate uh, speculation continue to occur on new silk roads and never occupy developments, even as the Himalayan floodplains are destroyed, because the end never arrives, or is simply delayed, or more appropriately derived. 
Resilience plays, of course, important and the understand, uh, in, importance in many, many different fields, but the understanding of resilience most crucial to my discussion today and to large-scale planning projects in our present was first forged in ecology discourse during the 70s, and especially in the Canadian ecologist work C.S. Halling, who established a key distinction between stability and resilience. It's quite important to recall that stability does not equal stability or homeostasis, and in this he was critiquing previous ideas coming out of ecology linked to systems theory and cybernetics about the idea that systems always return back to their kind of stable state. Um, so working from the systems perspective, an interest in the question of how humans could best manage elements of ecosystems that were of commercial interest, such as salmon, wood, these are the kind of problems he worked on. Hollings developed the concept of resilience to contest the premise, as I had said, that ecosystems are most healthy when they return back to equilibrium after being disturbed. Um, Holling recalled this state of equilibrium stability, but argued that stable systems were often unable to compensate for significant and swift environmental changes. As he put it, stability view of ecosystem management, trying to keep things the same, in short, emphasizes the maintenance of a predictable world. But today, of course, we live in an unpredictable world. And so Holling argued that stability was often the inverse of resilience. Resilient systems might have multiple states and could change while maintaining vital processes. So he created a new kind of equation where resilience equals operability and liquidity, which is to say what's important is that you don't care anymore about how many animals or people or whatever, you don't count numbers inside the population, you actually just try to make sure that vital processes are maintained. So you can lose a lot of fish as long as the ecosystem itself is kind of operating as it should. You're, not, you're thinking about the relations between, let's say, fish and algae, and you're not thinking about how many algae or how many fish. You're thinking relationally here. Um, so resilience managers should concentrate on preserving vital processes, a fact now made clear when you look at strategies to preserve things like vital system security, or when you examine the new line of resilience planning. So for just to kind of demonstrate this idea, this is actually uh, the real Hurricane Sandy in New York City, and does anyone know what that one gleaming gold building is? Goldman Sachs. Somebody did their resilience planning. Um, so, you know, while Red Hook and all these um, public housing projects are being totally annihilated through the storm, what is key is that the key operations, if you will, of this ecosystem of lower Manhattan, mainly identified as finance, continue to operate. And that sort of is, that kind of embodies in many ways the kind of mode of thinking of resilience fact, like everything else can go as long as Goldman Sachs keeps going. Resilience, therefore, is the capacity of a system itself to change in periods of intense internal perturbation. The concept of resilience enables a management approach to ecosystems that, and I quote him, emphasizes the need to keep options open, the need to view events in a regional rather than local context, and the need to emphasize heterogeneity. Resilience is in this sense defined in relationship to crisis and states of exception. It's a virtue when such states are assumed to be constant. So this is how, uh, for Halling, the argument is systems are always undergoing shock. It's not an unusual event. It's something that's constantly happening. But it's also a new epistemology. It's a way to know the world if you take up resilience. He argued, Hollings actually wrote that flowing from this would not be the presumption of sufficient knowledge. So we're no longer about risk and certainty and actually being able to account for what's going to happen, but the recognition of our ignorance, not the assumption that future events are expected, but they will be unexpected. So now we are supposed to plan, assuming we can never know the final outcome, always in the interest of hedging our bets. Perhaps Donald Ruffin said it best. There are known knowns, there are known unknowns, and there are unknown unknowns. And today we just assume we don't know. So ignorance has sort of become a virtue in planning. Contemporary planning, finance, and design abstract the concept of resilience from an ecological systems approach and transform it into an all-purpose um, epistemology and value. So all of our systems sort of operate with this. Um, it also, of course, within the landscape of planning and management, 
works to collapse the distinction between emergence and emergency. And nowhere is that better seen than in the sort of post-Sandy um, ads in New York City where you have like fix and fortify against what it could be post 9-11, it could be Sandy, it could be anything. In this sense, the term operates the interest of producing a world where any change can be technically managed and assimilated. Um, so a clear statement about the stance of urban planners towards geoecological trauma could perhaps not be found. Planning, it is posed, must assume and assimilate these future noble shocks, one that may come in any form, including threats to security, economies, and environments. This brings me to the third operation, to the second operation, which is sort of demoing. How do you hedge your bet when you don't really know what's going to happen at the end, since uncertainty is now the dominant way we encounter and deal with the future? Such logics pervade the landscape of large logistical and computational environments. So returning to the initial example of the imagined, never realized, high bandwidth smart city of Songdo, every state of this smart city is understood as a demo or prototype for a future smart city. Every operation understood in terms of testing and updating. So for example, this is the kind of things that people say about this in terms of the developers. It's an example. Again, it's an experimental prototype. It's going to be repeatable all over the world. It's a testing ground. In this case, a testing ground of half a million people. But these are testing grounds for the future of um, human life. But as a consequence, there's never a finished product, but rather an infinitely replicatable, yet always preliminary version of these cities around the world. So this idea of infrastructure as a demo avoids the actual question of whether this construction impacts the planet, labor, its inhabitants, and opens the door to assimilate difficulty or challenge into the next um, version by way of deferral. This design logic allows the management and negotiation of risks through derivation from an imagined origin in a manner that avoids, as I mentioned, ever having to deal with or take responsibility for what these actions are doing to the world. This evasion of encounter of the world happens because the credit has been swapped or the version already rendered obsolete. So we're already on the next generation of both data mining and mineral mining before anyone can even take time to evaluate the implications of the original bet. Um, and if a prototype fails, which is to say found ecologically or economically suboptimal or unresilient, then this failure does not provide wide-scale structural change in approach. The next development has already been planned. And in fact, in this case, um, Cisco, along with um, the ancient free economic zone in which this is located, uh, have started a sort of, and POSCO, which is a large tribal, uh, have started a management consulting company to kind of roll out smart city infrastructure around the world. And their main market hopes are in China, but they've currently been working in Ecuador and in Malaysia. So there are these constant kind of already um, new tests going on, even um, if the older ones are already found suboptimal. So um, this failure does not provoke wide-scale structural changes in approach, but rather modulation of current strategies and assimilation of the adverse event or any forms of resistance to the next model while maintaining, as I said, the basic operations of the ecology or the system, just like Goldman Sachs. Derivation and resilience are thus married, and the subprime mortgage crisis of 2008 might serve as exemplar. From the logic of the derivative, there was no crisis, and in fact, nothing changed. And what is true of finance also holds true today for urban planning and development, which brings us to the final operation, derivation itself or deriving. The concept of resilience is, of course, married with the concept of future, as I have mentioned, that is always a version or perhaps a derivative replica of another moment. Um, as Melinda Cooper has noted in discussing weather futures, contemporary markets have now produced derivatives that are literally producing values from betting on adverse or unpredictable events. So you can actually bet on like bad weather things happening, you can bet on climate change, you can bet on all these um, phenomena. Um, and you can bet on them in relation to one another rather than discrete occurrences with lived impacts, right? So you can bet Miami against, I don't know, Berlin in your real estate markets in relation to climate change. As she notes about these derivatives, where traditional derivative contracts traded in the future price of commodities, financial derivatives trade in the future of futures. So we're betting two different futures, right? Berlin against Miami, 
turning promise itself into the means and ends of accumulation. Time here becomes not a relationship of the spatial circulation of goods, labor, and commodities, but a thing in itself, a non-historical but also a non-geological or environmental time. It is a time as pure ecology of self-reference. The equation, Cooper, and this is what interests me as a historian, um, is somewhat new. She argues that at least before the 19th century, and these derivative markets first emerged around the Dutch East India Trading Company and then especially... Um, the other, the uh, British East India Company around the slave trade. And we must consider the longer history, therefore, these algorithms um, and the way that these histories of colonialism are deeply entwined within this new mathematical and computational mode of action. The futures market at those times bet a change in price over the time of a commodity. So if we think at least since the 19th century that time equals money, now we bet on time literally equaling time, as well as speculation no longer equaling prediction, which is to say you can speculate on something without actually predicting what's going to finally happen. Derivatives can be traded and make profits long before we know the result of the investments. And in fact, those who repackage and circulate risks, as again with mortgage markets, but now also markets in insurance, weather, um, energy, and in fact, energy derivatives are the most highly traded in the world, are betting on agglomerations of dispersed risks and futures, not on the relationship between the measurable substance or stored value of the commodity and the future price. This provokes new practices, most significantly, of course, around measurement, since time no longer equals money, but rather money derives from time itself. The form of time here, as I mentioned, is speculative, not predictive, and this logic assumes physical form through engineering and design in the production of test beds, demos, or prototypes. Speculation on a future that's also always multiple and elastic. Perhaps that's why we love the animation and reanimation of disaster in all these architectural projects, the constant reminder that change itself is a medium of speculation. If the Cold War was about nuclear testing and simulation. So we used to have great comfort and prediction and risk. So in the Cold War, if it was about nuclear testing and simulation as a means to avoid the unthinkable, yet nonetheless predictable, since nuclear war, thermonuclear war would destroy the planet, the formula has now changed. This distinction is best summarized um, by a distinction first laid out in the 1920s by economist Frank Knight. According to Knight, uncertainty, unlike risk, has no clearly defined endpoints or values. It offers no clear-cut terminal events. What follows is that the test no longer serves as a simulation of life, but rather makes human life. So we're now testing with human life itself. These things become test beds, experiments for technological futures that can be hedged and derived ahead of finding out what will actually happen. And so these forms of uncertainty are currently embedding themselves in our technologies, both of architecture and finance. Thus, in financial markets, we continually swap, derive, and leverage, never fully accounting for risks in the hope that circulation will defer any need to actually represent or confront it. And in infrastructure, engineering, and computing, we do the same. We prototype, develop, and demo, whether in building management systems or creating smart infrastructure. We optimize and make resilient environments through self-referential calculuses that compare performance only to the previous version of the building, electrical grid, and so forth. And the entire discourse of smart cities is invested in evading top-down planning in the interest of offering a data-driven system that literally uses its population as resource, medium, and testbed for new forms of development, extraction, speculation, and life. Perhaps coming out with a final equation as future risk transforms into uncertainty, high-tech and particularly smart and ubiquitous computing infrastructures become the language and practice to imagine our future. So all of this returns me, so I'm kind of playfully thinking about the fact that we're kind of constantly kind of creating these derivatives to produce the future. This returns me to the opening scenes and to contemplate the ethical and political implications of a world where derivation, extraction, and resilience are married in a manner that turns the planet and all its forms of life into a massive medium for the development of smart technologies, just as all the Himalayas being dug up for concrete to build smart cities. 
Today, we face, of course, a problem of imagining another world. So I also run a speculative design lab, and in the last final, even though this has been sort of a downer of a talk, I want to kind of contemplate what are the kind of, what are some things we could think about strategically and what might it teach us to have to encounter these kind of equations as they operate in terraforming our planet. Um, in order to be thinking about the kind of imagining another world, for me it's important to recognize the tragedy that it already has, that we're not just anticipating this uh, future uh, crisis, but rather that indeed many, many people have been, and animals and other living things have been already suffering violences for quite a long time and that in fact we have to kind of find ways to encounter the violence that has happened and continues to happen in our earth. Part of this is the historian is beginning to think about creating new forms of temporality and in re-invoking the genealogies of our contemporary algorithmic trading to recognize the histories of colonialism, race, and sex that are already inherent and inhering within our systems. And as part of that to also be thinking um, with projects such as the Astor Gates, this is Archive Houses and, um, and uh, the Dorchester Project in the south side of Chicago. They're attempting to rethink urban planning and actually even resilience and survival through different forms of time and encounter um, and different forms of community building. But I also want to think with, uh, with, with what ecology has to teach us itself. One of the things that Hollings often says is that in fact ecology itself is not about optimization. The most optimal system is rarely the one that can absorb shock and transform. Resilience, so the optimal decisions are often the worst, that there's kind of an issue between efficiency and resilience that in many ways might offer us an ability to rethink what this term means and what it might invoke. I'm also trying to think with other activists and um, academics who are working on all sorts of large infrastructural projects. This is the Kinder Morgan Transcontinental Pipeline in Canada. Um, where people are trying to increasingly think about how we can um, negotiate or rethink our politics and our strategies in relation to things like derivative markets. So in this case, people have been lobbying to try to actually work to change the risk valuations on these pipelines in order to make their financing less and less feasible so that uncertainty can be a tool both in terms of finance, both for the people attempting to build these um, pipelines, but also for people attempting to negotiate or block them in the sense of being able to open and pry open that category and ask how we're assigning value to uncertainty. Um, and I'm also thinking about different forms of care in terms of uh, the work of people like anthropologist Anit Singh and the way we cultivate uh, environments and ecologies. What other forms, historically speaking, were there of imagining um, smart cities and how we think about life in the face of disasters, such as metabolis? And then finally, in our own practice, um, I've been working with a geologist at this mine where we're running a series of studios to think about mine reclamation. How do we want to inhabit these destroyed spaces once we're finished using them? And sort of having to turn ourselves into the question of how we re-envision life on a damaged planet. So I'm going to end there. Thank you. Um, we have some time for Q&A. Other questions? Let me come to you. Hi. Uh, thanks so much for your talk. It was fascinating. Um, I want to ask, as a historian, um, you always have that tension of continuing the narrative and seeing things as results of previous processes and seeing things as new and novel and unique. So, and you kind of hinted that during your talk. Do you see this as a continuation of something that humans have been doing for ages, thinking about how to extract from populations, or is something novel, something in between that inherits uh, certain attributes or creates new ones? Which, which one is more? I think that's an excellent question. Um, I would definitely say that in my formulation, 
I view this as a radically new assemblage that I mean, and I'm not unusual in political economy and thinking that the 70s mark kind of some sort of transformation in terms of um, the organization of global capital. But I do think that the particular constellation of computational and algorithmic technologies, even as even if they're derived from a previous history of insurance and betting and colonialism, their hyper acceleration and penetration into every element of life. I mean, there does come that kind of threshold where at some point one says, okay, I think this is, I'm going to mark this as a radical difference. And also that it's integration and merger with um, these new forms of eco and population management that um, I didn't have time to really talk about it today, but do derive out of systems thinking and communication along with, I think, um, a radically new way that we actually manage infrastructure and actually construct things, I think as a, as a constellation, it's all radically new, even though, you know, I can talk about a history of smart cities, there's a history of utopian design, you know, there's, there's histories of all of this, but the actual merger of these genealogies, I think, is really specific to our present and kind of facing us with particular problems now. Thank you. Other questions? Hands going up. Oops. Back there. Right here. Hi. Um, thanks for talking. I appreciate it. Uh, it. It was fascinating. What I was trying to draw um, a pair or, or a understanding of was a, a good part of your talk is pretty depressing. Um, but not in a bad, I mean, it's just, it, it, you're, you're articulating something that maybe is left unspoken, which I think is really powerful. I want to understand the difference between what you're doing to kind of expose this, the negative side of the sort of hopeful futures, um, and, and derivatives and everything, and, and what you're doing differently with your students. So I want to try to understand the, the difference of what you're doing that isn't a pilot, that isn't sort of just accepting that we have a broken earth, that isn't all those things you just talked about, but, but is different. So can you, can you kind of articulate a little bit more about how you would draw the difference of what you're doing that you feel hopeful about, for actu like really hopeful about versus sort of pessimistically hopeful about? Well, I wouldn't say I'm really hopeful. <laughs> I'd say I'm like pessimistically optimistic. I mean, I wouldn't be up here doing this if I didn't think it made a difference, right? Like I, I wouldn't bother making these maps if I didn't think that somehow that would start helping people think through these correlations and that maybe somehow that's going to help us act differently or even envision the fact that it's not predetermined like finance and ecology don't have to merge or didn't have to it's a, it's a historical kind of thing that happened but it wasn't inevitable um, that is a great question because I'm not always sure I'm, I'm succeeding or anything like that but I am really invested in trying to understand what constitutes an experiment and what does it mean, you know, there's this famous saying by Nicholas Negroponte, demo or die, like what does it mean to demo without death? Like what does it mean to actually, yes, in many ways engage with many of the same practices and I just want to say that I even respect a lot of the designers whose work I showed, like I, I like, I like oyster texture, I like, um, Kyle Orff, like, I like and architects. I don't, what I'm questioning is like, why do you represent what you did that way? Like, do you have to have the devastation of New York looking that calm and nice? I mean, is that, that's a choice, right? That's something that it, at any moment, if we're awakened to it, maybe we can actually make different aesthetic decisions. And the hope is that by having to actually kind of in a weird way stay with the trouble, even in research studios like in these mines where you actually have to go back and be like, we wish we hadn't dug this up, but we have, and now we're going to have to live with it and we have to envision what, what to live with it and to have to actually engage with, let's try to do it other than the industry is doing just by smoothing some trees over it and making it look like we never were there. Like, is that the only way to try to conserve back the world we lost? Um, that hopefully that kind of challenge begins to open people up to having to actually like imagine what it means to live in this world and not only in a nostalgic or melancholic or reactionary way. Is it working? I, I, I mean, I think many of us are engaged in the same project, so I think one of the questions is how do we like kind of fortify each other, 
assist each other in that project, work together on these different heterogeneous ways? I don't know if that's an answer. I mean, maybe one last. You? Hi. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I'm interested in degraded modes. So you, you sort of, can you hear me okay? Uh, what did you say you're interested in? Oh, uh, degraded modes. Uh, when, when, a, when, when a system fails and we keep these vital resources going, mm -hmm. right? So you talked about how sometimes um, we have to design these systems such that they can absorb shock and, and keep working. Um, and what strikes me is that um, when things are operating in these, these degraded states, um, they still have to be able to absorb like aftershocks sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. um, which, is, which is kind of interesting. And I was wondering what the current state of, of the design of these degraded modes are, how, how we identify what these vital systems are that need to be kept operational, um, and whether or not we still leave margin in those degraded states, and sort of what the, what the status of these things are in, in the wild. I mean, that's a super, super, that's also an excellent question. It's actually a real discussion, right? I mean, people talk about system degradation, both in terms of its, I mean, in all sorts of systems. So one of the things that's hard to answer is sort of we have to be, I guess it helps to be specific. Um, so people are constantly talking about how, how, how to, the problem of maintenance has come up a lot and like whether you maintain or throw it out and this is um, an interesting kind of problem between the fantasy of like a Songdo Greenfield city and a New York city where you're like do you know how do we maintain um, water transport etc infrastructures even telecom there's constant degradation right as as the older systems come or do you just throw it out and like build a new city which is what is happening actually in in a lot of places i mean that sounds terrible i mean it's it's not helping it's only increasing social inequity and all of that but there is this kind of idea of you know, um, when I talk to these engineers at like K Telcom, like they're like, we can do this in three years. We can roll out a city for one million people. New infrastructure, everything. Like, forget it. Let's just let's just go with the disposable. Like, let's not maintain. And so, um, I think that in itself becomes a huge political question, a huge political choice about whether we want to engage degradation or whether we actually kind of just go with op planned obsolescence, which is, you know, something we do with a lot of our devices and a lot of our things. I don't know if that's an answer or that's what you meant. Um, but, it, I mean, it's an ongoing serious issue in urban planning and development. Wonderful. Unless I see a very quick arm going up in the air. I think that's about all that we have time for, but let's give another really, really big round of applause to our thank you so much for